Welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number eight. Hey, it's uh, Eric Marshall here. Before we start the show, I want to tell you about an experiment we're doing, we're doing and I want to enlist your help, if possible. Uh, you might have been listening for a while, or this might be the first episode you've listened to, but uh, we occasionally ask for iTunes reviews, and um, you might be thinking, oh yeah, I should get around to doing that at some point. And um, if so, if that's you, don't do it. Don't do it yet. We have an experiment. We want to try this experiment. So basically what we're going to do is we are going to try what we're calling a ratings bomb or a ratings palooza or a ratings of fawn or something like that. But at any rate, we want to see what happens if we get as many people as possible to review us on iTunes on the same day. And the day we're choosing is going to be Friday, August 23rd, 2013, uh, which is the same week that episode 10 will drop. This is episode 8. That will be episode 10. And the idea is that we're going to see if we can um, what it takes to get onto the iTunes new and noteworthy section. Uh, we have no idea if this will work, but we thought it'd be a fun little thing. So, uh, what we're asking of you is that you wait until Friday, August twenty third, to give us a review on iTunes. We'll, we'll remind you on episode nine and on episode ten uh, if you like our Facebook page, uh, we will remind you there if you follow us on Twitter at Rap Podcast, W-R-A-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, uh, we'll remind you there as well. So if you don't follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook, get over there, do that. Uh, you can find all this information on our website as well. Uh, that's a rapshow.com. So thanks a lot, and uh, we look forward to seeing how this experiment works. Okay, well, welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number eight. Today we're going to be talking about the state of cinema. We'll be talking about a speech that Steven Soderbergh gave to uh, the San Francisco Film Festival back in April, and about some comments that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas made um, at the opening of the uh, USC School of Cinema Arts buildings about a few months ago. So... Um, some of you have probably already heard these comments or watched the video or seen the articles. Uh, if not, we do have links on the, our website on thatsarapshow.com, so you can check those out. But we'll be talking about those in principal photography. But in the meantime, let's do pickups. So uh, for episode eight pickups, uh, I am Eric Marshall. I am Nick Schlegel. I am Chris Cullen. Okay, guys, uh, here we are again. Uh, well, you guys have the report. Anything new? Today is, uh, it's, we're in the middle of July. <laughs> Anything new going on? <laughs> <to? laughs> 
Well, you know, the semester uh, finished up for me about um, about two weeks ago. The first week of which I had, you know, various things to take care of. But the goal, the eye on the prize, the objective for the summer has been to finish my book. And the first week was pretty inactive, but wham, man, I'll tell you what, last week, last like Friday, I just sort of hunkered down into uh, in my little my little you know warfare trench and haven't come up for air since it's been really productive i've made some major alterations to the sort of like layout of the in the um, structure of the book uh and it's coming along great you know i mean for, for those who aren't familiar with this i haven't talked much about it on the show it's um it's sort of a canonization of the spanish horror film um and i i examine in depth uh, the years of 60, 1968 to 77, where you have the explosion uh, of uh, Spanish horror production in, in Spain at that time during the late Franco era. And the book also has a lot of prehistory uh, that sort of discusses the, the, the conditions really which made for the possibility of those films to exist in the first place. And I've been beefing it up and writing about it, watching movies and Tell you what, I mean, as we've talked about all summer or ever since we started the podcast, these are our most uh, sort of like productive months, uh, our most prodigious months academics. We're supposed to be writing like hell in the summer. And so I can can actually guilt-free say that I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice. <laughs> well, really, I'm just trying to get something under contract by the end of the summer, which seems more and more like it's going to happen. Yay! Yeah, that's that great. is great. Yeah, fantastic. Enough. What about you, Chris? Uh, I have not been nearly as productive as Nick. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not teaching this summer, but I've been I've been doing some other research, like watching films and everything. Um, since this is a media and culture podcast, the one thing that has been um, huge, and anybody who's listening to this podcast from uh, Florida, especially Central Florida, will and be Sanford. Uh, yeah, will 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 not be uh, surprised to hear about, of course, all of the coverage of the George Zimmerman murder trial that has been um, that is actually wrapping up. They finished closing arguments today and are uh, releasing the jury to a verdict. And um, in the greater scheme of things, what's what's what I think is more interesting is how the fact that the Bright House Network, which has been running pretty much constant access. Um, to the trial, um, they've suspended all of their programming, and they've really kind of capitalized and turned this into something that has been a, just a ratings juggernaut. After they um, broadcast the trial of Kaylee Anthony um, a couple of years ago, they really saw that people were interested in watching, and so they did it again with George Zimmerman, and who knows what the next big big case will be, but um, it's it's kind of this this whole repeat of the the O.J. Simpson media circus um, that happened, and and you know, of course we have this absolute lust for for watching these types of things uh, on on television, and now it's complete unfettered access. So I'm sure there's um, I'm sure there's definitely some some sort of discussions or articles or papers that 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 we could have um, on on all of this but uh fortunately it is coming to an end but uh there has been just absolute copious coverage um and uh we'll we'll see what happens in Sanford when the verdict comes hopefully it will stay peaceful yep but uh, other than that just uh dealing with the heat and humidity as usual so 
Yeah, I think you're right. There might be a paper in that somewhere. Well, and this yeah. is this isn't something this isn't something that's not even new. I mean, you go back, um, um you know, almost a hundred years with the whole Stan the Sanford White Harry Thaw, um, love triangle murder that 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 happened back at the turn of the century in New York, and that was, you know, the crime of the century, and everyone was covering that. And so this is this is not definitely not a new phenomenon, <laughs> but technically technology has certainly yeah. uh, enabled us to just follow it anytime we want. Yeah, the way it's been mediated, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, so for me, uh, as far as updates, not a whole lot. It's been a, you know, fairly relaxing summer so far, actually. Um, I did go see. Uh, I saw Noam Chomsky today um, at oh, U of M. Yeah, it was in Ann Arbor. Oh, damn! Very yeah. cool. Sorry, I should have told you, Nick. Um, it was the the uh, U- University of Michigan uh, Graduate Employees Organization and the Lecture Employees Organiz- Organization put on this uh, talk. Oh, it was oh, um, yeah. it's the uh, it was the corporatization of the universities or of higher oh, education. Did oh, you like? Man. Did you yeah. Watergate it or something? <laughs> I want to hear that. Watergate it? Well, I mean, it will be on video actually, um, yeah. and I will uh, when I get the link, I'll post it. It was a pretty interesting talk. He please uh, do. He does a good. He did a good job of contextualizing the whole um, what's been going on at uh, you know universities across the across the country. Uh, he talked a lot about um, kind of neoliberal policies in general and how they've affected all kinds of different um, industries and how education is one of them. You know, and it was uh, it was as as really interesting. It was a packed house. Holy moly! There were uh, it was in uh, the major the Rackham Auditorium, the big auditorium, and it was uh, there were a lot of people there. It was pretty crazy. Well, Chomsky so. is a bit of a you know he's a, a mainstream as well as scholarly or academic superstar. You know, I mean, yeah. he's yep. penetrated both spheres in terms of I mean, there's a lot of people on the street who know the name know the name even if they can't like really place the face or something and then of course there's the other section of the public that are like oh of course i know who noam chomsky yeah. is you know, i read all his books and i watched manufacturing right. consent and right blah, blah, blah. right yeah. yeah did you uh just on a this is a total side note and i you know i can even edit this out if necessary but did you guys see that uh thing about chomsky uh slamming zizek and lacan no, I heard something about that. <laughs> like apparently, he was like, "I'll send you guys a video. I'll put it on the show notes if this stays in." But um, he basically like rails against those two guys. Uh, for those listeners who don't know, it you know these are uh, film and media theorists. Uh, Lacan's a psycho- psychoanalyst. Zizek follows in that same same it's line, but yeah, okay, yeah, exactly, and they're very, uh, very popular in certain circles um, of academia, How and he, he just slams them. them. He, Chomsky's um, not much to rail, you know, he's always so calm and measured. Yeah, and, he just basically <laughs> says, he basically says it's just a bunch of empty rhetoric, um, <laughs> and like, the, what we call theory um, is not theory at all, because it's not, t- it's not testable. It um, is not very practical. Yeah, that's, that's so, true. I'll put that in the show notes. So, so that's that. What else is going on with me? That's about it. Um, just trying to do my own writing. As you guys know, I'm not doing. I'm doing um, non-academic writing and some quasi-academic writing, and just I'm just plugging along um, at that, trying to trying to write every day, um, which is hard, but I'm doing it. So it's you know, Eric. It's like once I told you this. Like earlier today or yesterday on the phone, it's amazing. Once, once the writing bug kicks back in, it's just it it's it's such a good thing, you know. I know it feels so good. Yeah, yeah, it does. 
it's um it, it reinvigorates the soul really i mean you you write this you write that you compose emails you write syllabi blah blah, blah. <laughs> you know you, you do sort of your daily writing and i know eric's been much more active in writing than i have since he finished graduate school but um i haven't really written anything major in the past year year and a half and so to get to get back into the book is just Wow, it feels really good, and to sort of like yeah, be yeah. be proud of what I'm writing, it feels great. And um, oh, the other last thing I would share, you guys know this, of course, but um, I for the first time in ten years, uh, I will be teaching all of my courses at one institution in the fall, which is it's never happened to me before. I'll be I'll be uh, full time employed at uh, Eastern Michigan University, and I'm very excited about that. It's it's going to be as as uh, as Robert Carradine says in um, Revenge of the Nerds, it's going to be a great year. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he says that as he's running down the sorority house on a panty, <laughs> on a panty raid. But. That's funny. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Well, that's excellent, Nick. Um, yeah, and I don't know what I'm doing in the fall, to be honest with you. I know I've got two classes at U of M Dearborn that I'm really excited about, and... Uh, other than that, I am not entirely certain. Sure. When I have some well, we never, we make. never are, are we? You know, right? It's, it's always right. bittersweet for me because I'll miss Wayne like crazy. Yeah, well, we're gonna do a pedagogy uh, episode later in the summer. We're gonna do uh, talk about teaching film and media, and maybe when we do that, we can also talk about the state of the profession because, you know, there's some stuff that people don't know. There's some stuff that people do know, and it might be an interesting discussion, actually. I think so. You know, I agree for sure. Yeah. Well, sounds good. Um, so let's, uh, I guess we're wrapping up pickups here. Yeah. All right, good. And then we'll move on to... Principal so. Photography. Principal Photography. And welcome to Principal Photography today. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the recent or fairly recent comments by Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and uh, Steven Soderbergh about the state of cinema. And we're going to do a little response and discussion of, of that and talk about what we think about the state of cinema as it, as it is today. Well, so, uh, I'll tell you what, Eric. I mean, talk about a roundhouse the and the perfect timing of this podcast the Lone Ranger is our as our opening, I think, wedge into this discussion. Okay. In terms well, before, of what uh, Lucas or uh, Spielberg had to say. Okay. Before we get into that, we should probably say that if you go to that's a rap show dot com, we'll have links to the article um, that that talks about um, Lucas and Spielberg and the video of Soderbergh. But um, and you guys can you know look at that at your leisure. Um, you guys being our audience. And so, should we rehearse, kind of recap the arguments first? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That'd be a good idea. Yeah. Well, they've all... It, it, there's a certain amount of sort of irony here that Lucas and Spielberg have come forth and discussed the sort of how untenable the current model, the blockbuster model of Hollywood production is, since, of course, they really ushered it in in the first place. So I always True. thought it was... Right. A little bit of irony, a historical irony there, but but nonetheless, you know, uh, I mean, because people have accused them of 
crocodile tears, but um, Spielberg certainly is talking about a, he predicts an implosion of the film industry and that uh, a half, half dozen of these you know, quarter million movies that flop are going to alter the industry forever and that we're going to see a sort of like an inflatable scale of uh, or what Lucas calls the Broadway scale of the like, Broadway uh, play model right where well you'll pay 25 bucks for your ticket to see the next Avengers movie but only seven to go see Lincoln and something like that and but it's much more complicated than that they but that's sort of their initial argument is that it's not sustainable anymore it being the blockbuster uh Mode. Um, mode of 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 movie production and maybe even theatrical theatrical presentation yes. itself, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the the interesting thing is, you know, he's he says in the 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 article, he says, you know, twenty five dollars for a ticket, which <laughs> actually the current price of a ticket isn't that far off. I mean, it's <laughs> I I mean seriously, depending on, where, yeah. depending on where you go, if you if you go to um you know if you I know here in in, in Orlando we have a uh, one of these big, you know, view and dine type type oh, yeah. places at the AMC. Oh yeah, it's an AMC thing. And I, I think uh, one time Nick came down and we saw a Harry Potter, and I think the tickets were something like eighteen or nineteen dollars. Oh yeah, they sure were. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that was just for the that was for the experience. But you know, if you think about it, a regular regular evening show on a Friday night is what ten fifteen bucks. So it's not yeah. too far off of that 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 price point. Yeah, and that's that's the I mean that's the gist of it, you know. I mean we can we can go into it. Uh, we'll discuss it a lot, but uh, I mean, and then Soderbergh went on to say at the the San Francisco Film Festival, he went into a what was about a forty minute um, plea or diatribe about how, and this is a you know I'll I'll go into a little side digression here. This is an argument that goes back to really the formation of like United Artists. Uh, and and the argument that people like Rod Serling took up the majority of their career, which is that people whose training and instincts are cut from an entirely business cloth, really know very little about <clears throat> about art. Basically, they know how to sell it, how to market it, how to profit from it, but they know very little about the artistic temperament and the artistic condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think this was at the heart of what Soderbergh was getting at was that he was sick and tired of of being sort of handcuffed and straitjacketed by the suits of the industry that it's gotten to the point when he and I mean, obviously it's a necessary evil it's an industry it's a business we all need these people uh, making helping us make decisions and guide guide their hands you know that you can't really have one without the other the the artists need patrons and in this sense the patrons are the studios right so I mean it works it's a symbiotic relationship and it seems to me that Soderbergh was saying I get all that but really it's gone just too far he's like I it's I can't it's I can't deal with this anymore these people are idiots they lack you know the training and skill to to do this anymore and he put his hands up and it's like I can't do it anymore you know well it's interesting that that with that, because I was just talking to somebody recently about um, how you know you had the 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 Paramount decision that really divested the studios and it broke up that kind of monopolistic paradigm of of the entertainment industry. But you look now that we've kind of we've really returned to that. I mean, you you well, have it's a million four, times worse actually. It's a million times worse. Yeah, I mean, it, it's vertical integration on speed, where you have these four or five companies that are controlling ninety five percent of the media. Um, and um, 
it, it yeah, it's it's like it is like Soderbergh says, it's it's just it's completely run amok. Well, it's become it's extreme horizontal integration. I mean, that was sort of the revenge of the studios was to be swallowed up by larger multinational synergistic outlets and then combined with their existing uh, revenue sources and streams of revenue sources uh, by their horizontal integrated you know, companies and businesses and corporations and so on. So it's, yeah, it's, it's never been a more ugly system, but it seems like these guys are really at their wits end with sort of the quality and level of executive decisions being made. You know, these guys grew up Spielberg and Lucas in the 60s and 70s working under uh, heads at Universal and Paramount and Fox and so on and so forth, who who were bright. <laughs> I think right. what they're saying is it's kind of like the level of politician we have now. We don't have very good politicians. Politicians are um, just as bad and corrupt as ever, but dumber. And <laughs> so the, and, and I think there's an analogy to be made here. I think what they're saying is like the, the quality of the suits that are running things is, is not, you know, they suck. Which kind of gets back to education. If you get down to brass analytical tax, they're not smart. They're sort of like poorly educated, making bad decisions. Yeah, that's that's possible. I mean, the 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 bottom line is profitability for for the people for the produ for the production companies, right? The ones who are whoever's giving out the money, right? The studios is what I should say, right? And um, you might be right that they're dumb, right? Uh, and that's why well, they're, they're ignorant flops, of history. Is what I mean. They're, they're ignorant uh, well, of trends in history, basically. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I. I think I might say the same thing about George Lucas mm -hmm. in in some of this, you know, this idea that uh, the you know cinematic experience would would, would uh, rival the the Broadway experience and people would pay the yeah, same amount of money is 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 completely ahistorical and just ri ridiculous on its face, you know, because the, there's a huge difference between a Broadway play or musical and and a cinematic event. You know, cinema is is a reproducible medium that that gets beamed now right by satellites into theaters and right. everybody's seeing the same thing in a broadway play you're seeing you get the the presence you know the aura you know you get the actual people sure, in the, the things and, yeah it's yeah. it's absolutely ridiculous and that and that and that tells me that that shows a lack of historical understanding of the cinema and what the you know cinema has historically been i think that the this newest trend of i mean it's always been about profit it's always been about churning stuff out that people will watch and and um be able to make money off of but these are guys we wouldn't be talking about this if these were not george lucas and steven spielberg yeah right? they're sure they're mm -hmm. prognostications there are kind of just silly and like yeah. ultra hyperbolic. I don't, I don't, I don't agree with them at all. And yeah, Eric, I think you're absolutely right to, to question Lucas's sanity. I mean, the comments and decisions that he's made over the past ten yeah, no years, right, are you know are ridiculous. I think Soderbergh, however, is pretty much, is a lot more sober in his criticism. Yeah, yeah. and he's putting his money where his mouth is. He he claims he's retiring. Yeah, from from filmmaking. You know, so, you know, and, and you're right. And Soderbergh's also one of those guys who has always been making low-budget kind of experimental films. You know, it wasn't just Sex, like, sex Lies and Videotape. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw Bubble, um, mm -hmm. where he was experimenting with um, 
you know, it's just you know, handheld camera, digital camera, all that stuff, amateur actors. But he also was experimenting with um, the day and date release, trying to release the DVD at the same time as the theatrical release. Mm-hmm. And nobody would show it. None of the major theater chains would show it, except for Landmark, uh, because they were afraid that releasing the DVD on the same day would eat into the profits uh, because of the, you know, the theatrical window. So they refused to show the movie in theaters. So there's this real resistance on the part of theater owners, distributors, and studios to do anything different in the face of changing technology. And, you know, Soderbergh, Soderbergh's always been willing to do that stuff. Yes. And, you know, now he's saying, you know what, I think I've had enough of this. You know, I've done what I'm going to do. You know, he'll make an Ocean's Eleven and I'll make Bubble. I'm not endorsing Bubble, by the way. I didn't like it at all. <laughs> it wasn't a very good movie, but uh, I don't know what the, I mean, the theaters are probably more worried about people coming in the first place. But, um, but you know what I mean? Like, he's, at least he is, he's been in both worlds the entire, his entire career. It's, yeah, he's been willing to take ahead, chances. Justin. No, I was just, I was agreeing. He's he's been far more willing to take take chances and do risky things than than um, Lucas or Spiel or Spielberg. Um, I mean, I I really yeah yeah we we can we can definitely question Lucas's sanity and and I mean I I pretty much lost what little respect I had for him when he sold his entire franchise rights to Disney. Um, that that that. I, Pretty much tanked my respect for Lucas after that. I, I love this. There's a there's a sentence in the in the article that says we're talking Lincoln and Red Tails. We barely got them into theaters. <laughs> Lincoln and Red Tails in the same sentence. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> anyway. Um, that I've always uh, like steadfastly maintained, um, and I believe is is just a it's true. It's just an axiom. I mean, there's like it's hard to argue with. Is that uh, a, a lack of awareness or general knowledge about history uh, is a really bad thing. Um, you, uh, apart from the obvious, you know, uh, canned explanations of like you're doomed to repeat the same mistakes if you don't learn from them in, in history, in your own history, mm. that's the obvious stuff. But if we kind of like, what I want to do is just take a minute here and sort of tie together some things that are going on. So let's like take this Spielberg comment where he says, um, <clears throat> Some ideas from young filmmakers are too fringy for the movies, Spielberg said. That's the big danger, and that's eventually going to be, there's going to be an, an implosion or a big meltdown. There's going to be an implosion where three or four or maybe even half a dozen mega-budget movies are going to go crashing into the ground, and that's going to change the paradigm. Okay, fair enough. I, I, I get his argument, um, and, I, and I understand when he says that things are, stories are a little too fringy for the movies and I'm not sure exactly what he's talking about but that it seems to me that he's saying that younger students need to be more aware of Howard you know Hawks and John Ford and Preston Sturgis and so on and so forth be aware of film history I get that uh, and I think embedded in that comment is also that studios aren't willing to uh, they're not going to be less willing to hedge bets and and front load a blockbuster if they're if they're going to start losing major money on them okay which which goes against the very thesis of blockbuster mode of production I get that too and sort of right somewhere in the center of all this the nexus to me is sort of just like yeah but you know what nobody gives a shit about any of that as long as there's a good story we forgive you know uh, open water it's it's aesthetic because it's a gripping story we forgive 
uh, Rocky, it's $750,000 budget, and it goes on to win Best Picture and sort of, you know, beats all the other competition up, including the very topical All the President's Men, because everybody falls in love with Rocky Balboa and Talia Shire, because it's a basic, simple story. I mean, the Aristotelian and Greek themes of, of, of the past will always still engage us. So I think this mantra of bigger, better, bolder, more exciting is really just bullshit. And, and I think somebody needs to sort of like point this out to everybody involved, the writers, the directors, the producers, the studios, and be like, you guys are losing sight of the fact that we're just trying to tell stories. Mm-hmm. And you're just so fucking obsessed over the, the, the hyperkinetic energy of it all that you're forgetting that, like, you know, Moby Dick, <laughs> you know, the, the, the last Mohican, the old man in the sea, you know, boat, dude, fish. We don't need much more than that. We never did. Uh, and this idea that we, we somehow need to or we've convinced ourselves that we have to have special effects hitting us constantly is ridiculous. That's yeah, my rant. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good, Nick. I, no, I, I, I agree. It's, it's the, it, you know, going back to Lucas and Spielberg. You know, they, they, got rich and famous off of the blockbusters. Mm-hmm. And simple themes too. Now they're complaining that it doesn't work anymore, <laughs> right? You know, it's one of those. It, it just seems like it's, it's um, like I think their diagnosis is right. I think they're. I think their forecast is wrong, yes, but I but agree. I agree with you that that this kind of effects-driven, spectacle-driven cinema that is very very high budget, mm-hmm. um, and 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 relies on very very big opening weekend profits is I don't know if it's sustainable. I know it's it's bad for people who actually like like you said stories or nuance or you know anything else. Um, it's hard to go to the movies in the in the summertime if you really like movies, right? Because you're going to see the same crap over and over. Yeah. Um, I agree with you completely. And that, I don't, I'm hoping is not sustainable. Well, I don't see it and, changing anytime soon. And these, these directors I just mentioned, I mean, Spielberg and Lucas, yeah, they were definitely the kings of the blockbuster era, unquestionably. But look at the films they used to build that empire. Look at Jaws. Is that not really nothing more than The Old Man in the Sea, which I mentioned a minute ago? Boat, right. fish, you know. Yeah, sure. And, you know, or, or Star Wars, right? Classic, classic mythological sort of like hero's journey type stuff, you know. Or uh, Lucas's precursor, American Graffiti, 1950s nostalgia-driven narrative. I mean, they, they, these guys built their, they, they honed their empires on, off of classic themes, and if someone if someone was to try and make Jaws today, the shark wouldn't even be real. They wouldn't have even had to build the shark prop. It would have all been CGI and um, digital effects. I mean, they yeah. just would have basically inserted the shark uh, around it. Um, Which right. would have taught... It would, the lessons learned on that film would never have been learned. And no, Spielberg, of course not. Spielberg like, you know, gleaned tremendous respect for nature in the sea because it kicked his ass and his entire production's ass for months. Um, yeah, so that's, you know. It, so, I mean, I'm looking at all this and I'm thinking, again, people can't see the forest through the trees. Uh, you can have your cake and eat it too in this scenario. And, and it's just, you need to be... You can't just sort of get up and do the same thing every day, you know. I mean, that's, and I don't mean the directors. I mean, I'm now I'm I'm specifically targeting the studios. 
that you can't just apply a formula to art every single day or you're going to get into this position where people are predicting an implosion because you're ignoring the human condition, the cultural conditions, the very fuel that, that sustains culture. If you're going to ignore it and just apply your algorithms to how much fucking money you're going to make, you're going to lose. Well, and that kind of goes back to what you said at the opening of this segment, Nick, with the Lone Ranger. Uh, it 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 seems like, you know, what you know, Disney's formula is okay. Let's let's make something. Um, let's let's put Johnny Depp in it, and people are going to come come running like like they've done with the all of the 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 Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Right. It's so funny, Chris, because I thought here's a great example. Disney did everything right with John Carter, which I loved. I thought John Carter was fantastic. We've had a lot of discussions about John Carter, you and I have. It's a great movie. I mean, I think Disney nailed it, yet it, they, they, their marketing of it was horrible. And people thought it was like, people aren't, weren't familiar with you know John Carter, and they weren't familiar with the stories. Uh, so they just thought, what is this, another Ice Age flick or something? You know, Because it had that sort of like, uh, you know, sort of tinge to it. So they largely ignored it and it's what a pity because it turned out to be i thought just a fantastic film and it looks like they're they're doing the same things happening again with lone ranger you know um maybe they over were overconfident in the allure of the, the film would have i don't know uh, what do you guys think um about johnny depp in particular no just about the lone ranger and <laughs> like you know what uh what do you guys think in terms of? Do you think they made the same mistakes they made with John Carter, or were they overconfident? Or I, I, I think they were. There were a couple, couple things. They were, they were overconfident. Um, I think that they were. Um, I mean, I love the Western, and and actually, Sharif and I, Sharif Shockey, good friend, mutual friend of us, we're having a discussion about this, and you know, we'd like to see the Western come back, but just not the way that Disney did it, um, and. With you know, I I think by again by by banking on on Johnny Depp as Tonto, um, my biggest question is, there are plenty. I know it's hard to believe, but there are plenty of Native American actors they could have used. Why couldn't they have used a Native a Native American actor to play? to play Tonto, uh, to give it, again, some more authenticity, sh to show respect for the material. It's just like what they did in Memoirs of a Geisha when they made, you know, half half of the, the cast of members of the of a Geisha were Chinese and not Japanese. You know, so they just kind of pissed on the, the respect of the for the source material. So, uh, yeah, I, I think they got overconfident. They, they absolutely advertised the shit out of it. Um, they did all sorts of tie-ins here at the, the, the theme parks and... and and um, I mean, I, I have not seen it. I don't really have a burning desire to see it. I grew up watching the black and white Lone Ranger, and it's going to be uh, hard to see, um, hard to see it with 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 all the glitz and glamour applied. I mean, I think I think maybe if it had been black and white, that might have been a step in the right direction. I think that would have been really cool, actually. Pretty sure could have been. Yeah, I think with well, with Lone, I haven't seen it either, and I don't know if I'm going to. I probably will, but um, I think I remember hearing something about Johnny Depp saying that he's part Native American to try to quell that very. <laughs> yeah, I remember there was something from the studio saying that he has of of Native American heritage or something. Um, I'll have to look that up, but I'm pretty sure I remember hearing that. But um, it's you know the the idea though is they're they're taking a well known. Um, icon, well-known story, in order to capitalize on it, because it's something that people already know. You don't have to 
you don't have to write anything. I mean, you do obviously, but you know, it's 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 not original. So they're you know banking on it being a lower risk. You know, with Johnny Depp and with um, with the story that people already know, that people will just go see it. And I think also that this, um, I'm sorry, Nick, but this um, reliance on opening weekends because the the theatrical window gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I think Spielberg talks about. I think he says, I, I want to say Jaws was in the theater for like a year or something like that. I don't, I don't recall. But um, means that you don't need people to repeat watch it. It doesn't need to survive very long. It doesn't have to be a classic. It just has to be something that people are curious enough to go see on opening weekend in huge numbers. You know, when I saw Man of Steel, I remember tweeting, I saw I paid money to see Man of Steel today. I'm part of the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want you know, I didn't, I didn't want to be one of the part of the numbers that that inflate those 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 opening weekend box office numbers, but I wanted to see the film, even though I knew it was going to be bad. Well, you know, growing <laughs> you up, know? it's funny. First of all, two things I want to say quickly in response to that. One was, social media has been really interesting with Lone Ranger. I have seen through various groups I belong to on Facebook a lot of a lot of people write in and say they liked. Lone Ranger, and that is a case where box office isn't necessarily equated with the film's perceived qualities. So I was like, oh, interesting. There was I saw a lot of people saying they really loved it, and uh, so when when they're talking about it tanking or bombing, it seems to me that it's not both critical as well as financial. I guess they're just talking mainly about the the money. I and mean, the second thing I wanted yeah. to say to you, Eric, was yeah, I uh, the the opening weekend is such horseshit. I mean, obviously it's not horseshit to those who control the purse strings. I get that, but when I was growing up, the that 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 mantle changed, you know, very infrequently. You know, it was like Godfather broke all the records, you know, and then Exorcist edged that out, and then Jaws, and then Star Wars, and you know, and then. Oh, et or whatever, you know so like the the box office champ continually changed but it, it, as an adult i've noticed that like it changes three four times a summer it's like, like the you know, flavor like of the week spider-man just broke all these rules oh no harry potter just broke it oh wait a minute no it's like every five weeks a film's coming out that's be like the all-time you know opening weekend you know box office getter and i'm like wow that's just insane it's the flavor of the week approach yeah. to uh to contemporary cinema Numbers. It really is, yeah. It's a good way to put it, Chris. I mean, because it it sort of it 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 reflects back the sort of like very fickle nature of the studio system, and to some degree the public too, uh, but more so the studios. Uh, and and I shouldn't say studio system. I mean, there is no studio system anymore. I should just say you know the distributor, the eventual distributor of a film. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I think that that's I think that's right. I mean, when you talk about something being a flop or a success, I mean, we are talking mostly about money, right? Because that's what gets things made or not made, right? Is is it going to make money? And you have to make yeah. money in such a short amount of time right now. You've got, you know, they there's a big reliance on international um, sales now. Um, so to make a movie you have to you have to be pretty sure that you're going to get good foreign sales especially in China now which is a huge market the last couple of years and i think in order to do that you need the stars you need lots of effects and story and dialogue aren't as important right um, that's that's the first thing and then you have to make all the money in in a week or two for theatrically but then you have dvd and 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 you know video on demand and stuff like that and it needs to have some legs for for all that but um, 
but that's the primary motivator in a lot of in a lot of films and you see you see studios taking fewer and fewer chances it seems yeah, oh yeah no question yeah you know, i'm looking i'm looking i have in front of me right now the uh top top films of each decade um mm-hmm. and uh so like i'm just going to look at the uh just very quickly at the 70s the, yeah, the top oh, please do my favorite so for un, unadjusted domestic gross totals, and I'm not worried about numbers. I'm just like just thinking about these movies, and maybe films, yeah. and this might show yeah. our this might show our age. We're all around the same age, so if we have younger listeners, maybe they can tell us. But when I think of, I'll, I'll read the top several um, in order: Star Wars, Jaws, The Exorcist, Grease, The Sting, National Lampoon's Animal House, mm-hmm. The Godfather, Superman. Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Smoking the Bandit are the top ten. Okay, <laughs> Rock, Rocky's yeah, yeah, Rocky's yeah. number twelve. Blazing Saddles is up there. Okay, so that's those are all films. Most of those are films that you have seen and we have seen many, many times, and they're rewatchable. Oh, yeah. And and we can and, quote from them. Yeah, we can quote from them, and and people will watch them. And like if you show a, if you show someone Jaws today, they're still going to be amazed by yeah, it, yeah. right? People will start with. So if, if I go to ahead to the two thousand tens oh boy i guess it's only three years but i don't know if that's fair types of films are going to change let's go to the 2000s let's go to the 2000s so that's between 2000 and 2010 it's um in order superheroes yeah exactly he got it right exactly uh in order this is the 2000 through 2009 avatar dark knight shrek 2 pirates of the caribbean dead man's chest spider-man Transformers, Star Wars Episode 3, hey, Star Wars is still there, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, Spider-Man 2, and Passion of the Christ. Spectacle, um, man. So, yeah, yeah oh, except, for, spectacle. except for, or maybe including the Passion of the Christ. Um, yeah, and, and I think now in 30 years, are people still going to watch, I don't know, I guess Shrek 2, or the Transformers movie, for example. You know, some of these will hold up, I think, but. Um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of the Transformer films. I mean, well, if there was ever sort of just spectacle and lack of utter substance anywhere, yeah, it's there. Absolutely. And I, but that's what they're designed to do. I get it. It's just, yeah. um, you know, it, it, I'm so glad you did that, Eric, because, I mean, that, that speaks to a willingness in the 70s to foster both, A, the blockbuster approach to making films, and, get, and of, of course, the, the smaller, less risky projects as well. Uh, the Robert Altman films, you know, mm-hmm. and the, for example, I mean, or, or we can, I can go on much further than that because the seventies clearly was the decade when the character actor became the leading man. Yeah. You know, when, when right. Chino and De Niro and, and, um, Bruce Dern and, and, uh, all these types of actors basically and Dustin Hoffman and, and they all, the guys without the, the sort of leading man, good looks suddenly became the protagonists in, in so many of these movies. Uh, and yet, it was, there was still a home for Paul Newman and Robert Redford, and you know the the, the classic leading man's yeah. looks of that era. So I mean, it's like the, the decade where everything changed, but they were still willing and and uh, to 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 finance smaller, more personal projects. And those smaller, more personal projects wound up making boatloads of money yeah. too. Uh, and I think we need to get back to that somehow. It just uh, it's well, it's less less like Soderbergh was railing against. It's just more and more difficult. Because the studio is going to say, "Go pitch that to HBO. Go pitch that yeah. to Lifetime. Yeah. Go pitch that." But that could be, I mean, that could be good or bad, right? Because, um, I mean, HBO produces some really quality entertainment. Mm-hmm. They do some good stuff. It's different, right? Well, it's it's, not, ba- it's bad know. in terms of dissemination. Uh, uh, 
because if you have a few bucks in a and in, in your legs to walk to a movie theater, you can go see a film. If you need <laughs> HBO, you know, HBO, HBO is, yeah, HBO's hard. There's a barrier yeah. of entry there, so sure, sure, yeah, that's yeah. very true. Yeah. Well, it's and and you look at like like you said the 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 quality of the store, just the different types of stories that you have on that list from the seventies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it's so varied and it, I they're, love they're, they're fantastic. Smoking the band, the Sting. I mean, I love you, it. you look at these these the stories from um, from the two thousands, and it's just it's it's spectacle, but it's it's fluff. It's not a lot of it is. Yeah, a lot of it is a lot of substance. And um, yeah, I mean, you could you could call you know the the Passion of the Christ a you know it, yeah, it's a pretty old story, mm-hmm. but the way Mel Gibson did it was it was all spectacle and all glitz the way the way it yeah. was it was it was presented to its audiences. Sure. We need someone to come along and do another scathing satire in Hollywood, like Altman's The Player, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. Ho- hopefully, um, if we can get another one of those made, we can just point out how ridiculous things have become. <laughs> because they have. Yeah, been, definitely. You know? Maybe we definitely. need to make it. <laughs> yeah, we should We should totally do go. that. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, uh, I think that, project. I mean, budgets as well. I mean, like, the, the budgets for films obviously have gone way up. But, you know, look at the 70s as well. And I'm, I just took that as kind of a, a random, a somewhat random decade. But um, but there are some parallels, right, where uh, the whole, not just the, the you know, the actors and everything that you're talking about and these new directors, um, but the whole industry was in flux. The whole studio system was was being rearranged. The uh, the rating systems were changing. Um, the ability to do more risky or risque stuff. The reinvention uh, of genre you know, to some degree, you know. To some I mean, degree, yeah. yeah. Some of those are, like you and I were talking about with McCabe and Mrs. Miller <laughs> right. the other day, you know. Yeah. Sort of like mm-hmm. Genres being played yeah. with. But that was, yeah, but that's, I mean, that's, I think, uh, that, I think, is a product of that flux. Yeah, that that electric atmosphere of the 70s made it possible for Altman to experiment, you know. Yeah, and also maybe, you know, I'm sure there's some fear, too, because, um, you know, they're still competing with television, so now we've got widescreen and color, and we've got different, you know, technologies to to tell stories in different ways, right? You know, and there there are other there are other factors too, and I think that now we also have those other factors. We have HBO, we have, you know, all the cable stations that are interested in long form storytelling. We also have the internet. You know, we have. Um, different ways to disseminate, but also different ways to avoid going to the theater. I suppose in certain ways, uh, but there are there are ways to see things, and I think that there there are ways to to make films. I think that yeah, there are, see. and I think ultimately it rests. I mean, I think Spielberg and Lucas and Soderbergh are on the right track here. Like you mm-hmm. said, their their methodology may be a little weird. Well, yeah. not not Soderbergh's, but and to some degree Soderbergh's, they are the ones that have the fucking power to change this. Right. They are the ones that need to be. So I love that they're being vocal. I mean, you know, like again, you you talked about the '70s, and I'm so glad you did because think of films like uh, Serpico or The French mm-hmm. Connection or Dog Day yeah. Afternoon. I'm thinking of Sidney Lumet here in particular, but or, or but like these are films that. Uh, or, or network. There's another one that just popped into my head. You know, these are films that like have aged so beautifully. I mean, obviously they're 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 films that reflect the the period in which they were made, like all films do. But their themes are timeless, and the characterizations and acting in them is incredible. And you screen them to younger audiences today, they come out kind of blown away by something like 
you know, Dog Day Afternoon <laughs> with all of its energy and all of its incredible drama and stuff like that. But today, those films really are represent such a minor percentage of the aggregate totals made made every year. Where in the seventies, it was uh, there was a concerted. They made up a much larger chunk of the pie. And now, if you want to go see Before Midnight, yeah. Before Midnight is only going to be in the small little art theater, right? It's not going to be playing in the multiplex because it just right. doesn't have that type of power. We need to get back to those days, I think, somehow, where story is privileged over spectacle. Or even better, you can give us both in the same fucking movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or even where, yeah, and I, don't, I don't see that changing, but the there's no chance to gain an audience. You have to have the audience coming into it. So that's why Lone Ranger is important, right? Like something like Before Midnight has a built-in audience, but it's also a really low-budget film, right? But, um, yeah, I mean, some, like, before, like, in the 70s and 80s, peop- before the blockbuster, I suppose, I might have to look some of this up, but I think that a film, even if it wasn't doing well, would run three weeks, four weeks, maybe longer, sure. right, and get a and longer run, run if it did well, and it would have a second run, and it would have a chance to gain an audience and gain the uh, kind of word of mouth. But if something's not doing well now, it's gone immediately. And you're right, in the limited release, it's hard if you're not in a major city to see no. anything that's not major release. Well, yeah, you remember the old, uh, when we watch, a, you open up the, the, the newspaper, and the movie would say, held over. Because it was it was so popular, yeah, they would yeah, they would those great days. Oh you know, God! Walk into some you know douchebag's office and and in you know at Warner Brothers or whatever, and just just throw them the IMDb thing and show them that like number one and number two oscillates back and forth between like Godfather and Shawshank, and say, okay, there you go. What what <laughs> what more proof do you need that people are far more addicted to stories than they are mega budgeted you know rubbish. Uh, we all love mega budget <laughs> budgeted rubbish. Yeah, I yeah. like that phrase. I, yeah. I want to put it like that. A, is a good. That is a good phrase. Mega budgeted rubbish. Um, we all enjoy you know trinkets and trash and thrown on our face. But ultimately, what connects us to a sto- to a film is its story. Almost always, uh, if if we're not engaged on that level, you know, then it's just something to have on in the background while you work on a project. Yeah, you Shaw, know, Shawshank and Godfather yeah. exemplify mm-hmm. that, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, people are making, still making good films. They're just not getting the chance sometimes, you know. I think on the other end of it, and uh, I hadn't thought about this until we started talking, but um, I, 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 I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Zach Braff's uh, Kickstarter campaign for his next no. film. No. Okay. Well, I'll put it in the show notes, but just briefly, um, you know, Zach Braff of Scrubs and Garden State fame, a um, couple months ago now maybe, put up a uh, Kickstarter because he wanted to uh, try to fund his next film. And he was looking for, I can't remember what he was looking for, it was like probably a million dollars or something. I can look it up. But um, he had a lot of backlash for this. People were saying, like, why is Zach Braff going to Kickstarter? Why is he trying to crowdfund a film? Why can't he just use his own money? Uh, why can't he just go to a studio? It must suck if he can't get a studio to like it. And he got a lot of crap for that, you know, from from people who are like, why would I give it to this guy? But also from people who are like, why are you using Kickstarter like this? You know, there are people who really need, you know, Kickstarter and you're taking money away from them. And he came out with with really interesting, um, a really interesting take on it. I heard him on... Um, 
KCRW is the business, and I've read a couple of things, and I can post those to the show notes as well. Um, at that's rapshow.com. But uh, he uh, he said basically, if he wanted to make it in a major studio, he would have to cast a certain type of actor. He would have to do certain things to get it the the foreign, um, you know, to get the get it uh, get you know broad interest in foreign markets. Uh, he would have to guarantee certain things, and he would have to give up a good deal of control. And I think that's what Soderbergh's problem is, um, yeah, in particular, exactly. is right. that you know you as a f- filmmaker, you know whoever the filmmaker is, is um, wants you know has a vision, has control, wants control, and is increasingly having to give up control because the people who fund the film want very specific things that they that have been proven to make money. And that's where your story is going, Nick, right? It's it's kind of like, oh, spectacle makes money. Let's do more of it, right? Sure. And so so he, he said, I'm going to try to, you know, he's said, I'm going to put some of my own money in. I'm gonna, I have some, you know, backers, and I'm going to go to Kickstarter so that I can do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the other aspect of the argument was that um, I, apparently he brought a lot of new people into Kickstarter who have now funded a lot of other things. Kickstarter put out a um, press release of their own saying, like, actually, just because you're donating to Zach Braff doesn't mean that someone else is not getting money. Right. He's actually bringing more money in. And I'm looking at it right now, and uh, 46,520 people donated. That's great. Um, $3.1 million of the $2 million <laughs> that he, yeah, that he originally, he originally wanted wow. $2 million, He got $3.1 million. And, um, you know, and the way he's putting it is like he says, that I'm creating a community of people who care about this film and who will get something out of the film. And, you know, beyond that, he says, I get to keep control. And that's the other end of the spectrum, right? Is, you know, there are that ways. That end of the spectrum is really, really sad because it, it there's no way it, it needs to oh, be yeah. that way. Uh, yeah. it, it just doesn't need to be that way. Historically, it never had to be that way. Yeah. I mean, under the controlled environment of the studios, all types of pictures were being made daily at every studio. It wasn't until the collapse of the studio and the chaos of the independent scene mm-hmm. uh, in post, what, late 60s and the 70s, where there was that wonderfully, as you said, Eric, uh, dynamic flux period where everybody was trying out new things and still, still story was king. In fact, character actors were king because what was going on in the 70s was so sort of con- contemporaneous that it was clearly you know reflected in the, fi- the cinema at the time it's right. great it's great stuff so your point earlier to well there's still good movies being made is it's just they're not finding their outlet is right. sort of like writ large the problem in the arts right we all say well yeah. where's the next Beatles and where's the next uh, you know where's the next Eddie Van Halen in terms of proficiency in the guitar where's the next this person where's the next Pat that and the question is yeah they're all there I mean we've, we've all had these conversations before fundamentally human talent hasn't really changed that much it's a question of can they find a voice to a megaphone to amplify their artwork? And the answer is no. That it's very, very, very hard because of the self-imposed ridiculous model that we have that we're so used to now. We feel we can't change it. So I kind of like I back Spielberg and Lucas for trying to sort of like being so being so hyperbolic and saying, right. uh, you know, this is the end of the world. it's the end of days, folks, you know, and I, I get it, but it's like, then you guys need to put your money where your mouth is like Soderbergh and do something about it. 
Of course, Soderbergh's not really doing anything about it. He's just looking for other other venues because he feels <laughs> he, can't, he can't fight City Hall. But if enough right. people fight fight City Hall, that's where revolutions are born. You know? Well, sure, because right. if you get Soderbergh and Spielberg and Lucas and whoever else to to jo- to join in this fight, eventually, yeah, you're right. People, the, the change is going to be made. Yeah. Well, we 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 can only hope, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe we're being idealistic, but. You know, I think so. You know, I don't think I don't think the cinema is going away. The ed- theatrical release is Eric, not going Eric, away. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We're yeah. being idealistic. I couldn't agree more. But it's like if you if you make a case and you understand history, you can go in. You can get get a broad coalition and go in and try and make a case to uh, the board of directors of a certain place and get imbeciles fired and try a different approach. Because I mean, what, what did what did uh, when you walk in with like the data for like a, a Blair Witch, right? And you're like, okay, this made this thousand dollars and made you know twenty million worldwide. Yeah, when sure. they see the sort of like return of investment there, they start yeah. salivating and they're like, so just simple stories. That's all we need. It's like, yeah. And then and, you know, I mean, it's just well, there is a gimmick. There's a gimmick to that as well, though. That was a true. gimmick, yeah. yeah. I mean, true, but I mean, the, the point being that we're all suckers for a simple story, it, and and history is is the predictor of this over and over and over again. Uh, we don't need anything all that complex. Uh, you don't need all the spectacle. We don't need to throw all this money into these, you know, what did I call it earlier? Like mega budgeted rubbish. But we'd like to, because we're idiots. <laughs> yeah, and some of that stuff isn't bad, you know. Some of it's okay, but it's just that it really does become an either-or almost. It, it feels like. Well, like I said earlier, we can have both. If you look at like throwing over the Avengers property to Joss Whedon was a stroke of genius. You know, he gave that film a certain sense of humanity. He juggled the characters beautifully. It had fantastic special effects. It had great performances from. I mean. That's per- that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I think you know. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I'll agree with that. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I can I can get on board with that. It's just when you see a the uh, what gets me is you go to uh, a twenty screen uh, cinemaplex, you know, a theater, or whatever, and you're like, awesome, twenty screens, right? But twelve of them are. <laughs> You know, the Avengers, kind of, or the Avengers, whatever it might be. So it doesn't really. You're not seeing. You don't have the opportunity to see 20 movies. You get to see, you know, 12 screens of the Avengers and six screens of whatever else, and then you know, the other two are for whatever for that weekend. And then the next weekend, something else is coming out. Right. That's what gets me is that you know, I have to travel so far sometimes to see see a movie. You have to time it right to see a see a non-mainstream movie. But I don't know. Maybe it's always been that way to some extent. But I mean, we're living in a time where there are more and more movies being made of mm-hmm. all kinds of different, um, you know, caliber and, and, and budget and everything else. It's just I think the the biggest thing that and Soderbergh and Lucas bring this up. It's it's about exhibition. It's about theatrical exhibition. How are they getting into theaters? What's being mm-hmm. chosen to be made to get into 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 major theaters? And maybe that when you guys mentioned earlier, distribution might be the part of the problem. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's complex, and um, and but needlessly so. Ultimately, is I think my my final word on the subject is, you know, human beings have a a, a natural knack and talent for, you know, over dramatizing things and making things needlessly difficult. I've always tried to find <laughs> the path of least resistance in my life, and it's mm-hmm. like there's really nothing now that like hocusy pocusy about this. It's like good stories, competent directors, competent. 
you know, talented actors. It's not, it's, there's really no magic formula. You know, it's like what Harlan Ellison says about writing a good story. There's, they don't go up into the attic with your orangutan bones, (laughs) you know, and and, and send away for your six pack of ideas and things like that. You just, you just work at it. And if you're a good sociologist and a good psychologist and, and you understand the human condition, you can, you can write a, a great film. You can make a great film. You can sell a great film. Um, you can affect people's lives. It, it doesn't require transformers, you know. Um, right. 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 Nothing against transformers, but I think that the mindset a lot of these these douchebags in Hollywood, and by that I mean the suits, is like you know, it's if it's not high concept and high budget, we're not interested. Okay, well, that about wraps it up, I think. So uh, visit our website at thatsarapshow.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, it's Rap Podcast, W-R-A-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can like us on Facebook, um, but hold off on rating us on iTunes until Friday, August 23rd, because we're doing an experiment. It's going to be great. So that's it for episode eight. We'll see you next week. Cut. That's a wrap. <laughs>